0: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin.
1: Join me now for a conversation with Vishal Gupta, the President and CEO of California Gold Mining Incorporated, trading on the OTCQX as CFGMF and on the CFC as CGM. Mr. Gupta is a professional geologist, having had experience working with numerous junior exploration and development stage mining companies. Most recently, he worked as an equity research analyst covering junior mining companies for Toronto-based financial institutions, including Dundee Capital Markets, Fraser McKenzie, and Global Financial, where he conducted independent technical due diligence on several exploration and resource development programs throughout North, Central, and South America. California Gold Mining is focused on continued development, development of a high-quality gold resource on its 100% owned Fremont property in Mariposa County, California. The property consists of an entirely private and patented land package totaling 3,351 acres of historically-producing gold mines, with a state highway, PG&E electric substation, and abundant water present on the property itself. The company is also pursuing establishing a greenhouse-based propagation of high-CBD industrial hemp seed on the Fremont property, the cash flow from which could be used Used to continue development of its gold business with less dilution for shareholders. Michelle, welcome back to the program. Give us an overview of the company.
2: California gold mining has a private piece of property in central eastern California and that we purchased in 2013. It's called the Fremont Project that we have. It's completely private, three thousand three hundred and fifty one acres of land that has a substantial four kilometer strike. Of the historic mother load gold belt of California running on it. Out of that four kilometers, we drilled out about one kilometer of the strike and came up with a pretty substantial initial 43101 combined resource estimate of almost 900,000 ounces of gold all near surface. There is potential to expand that initial resource along strike and at depth. We came out with that resource about three years ago. Since then, we've been working on raising funds and drilling out the second kilometer of that total four kilometer strike. And in the process of doing so, we obviously, given the vagaries of the gold market, What we noticed was that we were not getting the proper appreciation from the gold markets for all the operational results that we were putting out. I mean, we'd had fantastic results so far in the second kilometer drilling, but our stock price kept on tumbling down and we were forced to do financing at lower and lower and lower prices. So in about 2017, early 2018, we decided to take a look at adding a second business stream to our initial business stream, our primary business stream of gold exploration, to see if we could generate some positive cash flow from the second business stream. And uh, that could alleviate some of those dilution issues that we were experiencing due to falling gold prices, despite our good operational results. And so we started looking at industrial hemp as a viable sort of a business that we could set up on our property, industrial hemp in terms of the cannabinoid rich industrial hemp strains that we could potentially get our hands on to try and see we could go and get cultivation experts that could help us cultivate industrial hemp on our property, in California and then generate some meaningful cash flow, a significant chunk of which could be used towards achieving our goal exploration objectives, albeit in a non-dilutive sort of a fashion. So that was the impetus in 2017, early 2018. We started doing a lot of research. We approached the county of Mariposa where our project is in California. We got the, the initial approval from the county towards the end of last year, and we started setting up infrastructure, setting up our business of hemp cultivation, primarily seed propagation on our property in California. Then what we saw was in March, April. April, May of this year, we started seeing that there were significant delays from the California Department of Food and Agriculture, which is a state authority that controls all of agriculture within the state of California. In terms of them rolling out protocols for industrial hemp registration, sampling and testing protocols and all that sort of stuff. Despite the fact that in December 2018, the US Farm Bill was passed that legalized industrial hemp throughout the United States, we still had to wait for the CDFA to come up with their registration and sampling and testing protocols to be fully implemented and to be fully rolled out before we could start setting up our hemp business in California. In the meantime, while we were experiencing some of these delays in California, in the meantime, what we saw was there was an opportunity for us to pick up some additional land parcels in the U.S. Midwest. And one property in particular is this Grove Road farm that we came across about three months ago in uh, Illinois for the last... Two and a half, three months, we've been working our butts off to try and see if we can close on this transaction and actually purchase this 82-acre grove work farm in Illinois. And while the CDFA in California is still working out its registration and sampling and testing protocols, we had an opportunity to basically shift the focus of our hemp business from California into Illinois, and we could still maintain our timelines in terms of generating cash flow for our shareholders. So what we've done is we purchased the property. Last week, we put out a press release that announced to the markets that we have purchased, You know, we've successfully acquired this property. We have also successfully closed on a financing or debt financing that was in the works for the last few weeks as well. That debt financing helped us with the uh, eventual acquisition of this property as well. We also purchased a lot of equipment. We also purchased the seedlings that would be required to actually be planted into this field in Illinois on this Grove Oak farm that I mentioned before. Now we're in a position where we're looking at some significant cash flow coming our way. Our first revenue realization now is slated for the end of September, early October.
1: Last time we spoke... I do nothing of this, of course, and that's fine. I'm glad to be talking about it today. I did not know you're going to go beyond the propagation of generating these hemp seeds for the use of CBD. And of course, you have offtake taken care of that. You've got a commitment for that offtake. But now, with this addition of the property in Illinois, and congratulations on that, you're sort of hedging your bets. You're not necessarily waiting for the CDSA in California to give that approval before you meet your hopeful revenue goals. So this is a plus as far as I see it.
2: Absolutely. That's the only way to look at it. Our commitment to our shareholders is that we want to enter this hemp space so that we can generate some meaningful cash flow. I'm not talking about meaningful cash flow two or three years out. We want to generate meaningful cash flow this year. We had this bit of a delay from the CDFA in terms of their registration and sampling and testing protocols coming out. And in the meantime, we started getting a feeling that this may actually be a significant delay roughly three months ago. And at that time, we started looking around for other viable locations for our HEM business to actually be launched from. We came across this fantastic property in Illinois. I can't rave enough about it it's one of the most fertile pieces of land that we have come across it's got a uh, somewhere between 160 and 195 bushels of corn yield on a per acre basis and it's completely pattern tiled it's laser leveled we've got two big road systems connected to this property as well this is in a rural agricultural exempt sort of a sort of an area of Illinois which means we don't even need proper engineering designs for and full building permits to construct some of the small buildings that we need to build to handle a crop and stuff like that so it's ideal and very importantly, and this is a point that I tried to stress in my press release as well, very importantly, our cultivation experts who are working with us as consultants and are basically managing the entire cultivation of industrial hemp on our properties, the firm is called Delta Valley Hemp. They're actually based out of Chicago. And this new property that we have purchased is roughly an hour and 10 minute drive straight from their headquarters in Chicago. So this is ideal. I don't have to set up a satellite office in California for our cultivation experts to be managing a crop there. This is just they come in the morning, they work on the field, and at night they're going back home instead of going back to a hotel. And that's significant cost savings for us. The morale is much higher. You know, the productivity is going to be much higher as well. And so we're pretty excited about this opportunity. Initially, we were looking at just doing high CBD industrial hemp seed propagation in greenhouses. And that's what we were trying to prepare our property in California for. But Due to this delay, you know, the rolling out of protocol and legislation and regulations in California, we got this opportunity to actually not only build a greenhouse on this property in Illinois, which is going to be coming down in Q4 of this year, but we also had the opportunity to take advantage of this amazing fertile soil that we have, the remainder of the cultivation season for 2019, to actually get a meaningful harvest of a very high CBD industrial hemp biomass crop this year as well. So in the next two, two and a half months or so, we're expecting a pretty significant harvest based on which we're expecting a pretty significant revenue generation.
1: Does this mean that your focus is going to change from the propagation of hemp seeds?
2: No, I I would say that this biomass cultivation is a bonus. Our core business will remain the seed propagation that we were looking to do anyway, but we just had the opportunity because we got our hands on this really fertile piece of land and there was still enough of the cultivation season in 2019 left for us to make a go of actually doing a, a biomass crop, you know, a high CVD biomass crop, we decided to make a go of it. But I would like viewers, listeners, and audiences of your talk show to actually view our biomass cultivation as an add-on to our core business of seed propagation. So our first greenhouse for seed propagation, which was slated to be built in California, on our property in California, is now we've already signed off on the location change order. Farm Tech is the name of the manufacturer. They're based in Iowa, and they're one of the largest greenhouse manufacturers in the entire United States. So we've already signed off the location change order with Farm Tech to transfer. Instead of building the first greenhouse in California, we're gonna be building that in Illinois as well. The expectation is, Around the same time when we're going to be harvesting our outdoor cultivation, our biomass cultivation crop outdoors, that is towards the end of September, around that time, our first greenhouse should actually be fully installed on a property as well. And so the expectation is before the end of this year, it's a three-month seed propagation cycle within a greenhouse. So before the end of this year, sometime in mid to late December, we should actually be completing our first harvest within the greenhouse for the first round of seed propagated within that greenhouse as well. So we should have a second revenue generation opportunity before the end of the year. And then expectation is every three months, every three months, every three months, we'll be coming out with a new harvest of seed within that greenhouse, and that would be an additional revenue generation opportunity for us.
1: Can we expect more acquisitions in 2020?
2: I don't want to be too forward-looking, Alice. I can tell you that there's a lot of scrutiny on the public disclosure for junior companies like ours that are looking at adding secondary businesses to their primary businesses. So I don't want to be too forward-looking Obviously, it makes a lot of common sense for California Gold to be looking at other opportunities. I obviously cannot give you any details, but if we're going to be coming into some significant revenue, some significant cash flow towards the end of September... I think it would only be logical and, and in the shareholders' best interest if we were looking at expanding our hemp business to other jurisdictions as well. And not just in terms of expanding and de-risking our hemp business by placing it in different jurisdictions, but also certainly in terms of adding to the overall production of hemp seed and overall production of biomass cultivation for the 2020 growth season.
1: Are you a hemp CBD company or are you a gold company? And when you're investing, shouldn't there be just one message coming from the company?
2: Well, I, I see your point. I get asked this question a lot and the way that I see this and you have to understand my roots are mining. I mean, I'm a geologist. My wife is a geologist. My sister is a geologist. Most of my friends are are geologists. Out of the last six years, for five and a half years, this company, ever since we purchased this property in California, this has been a mining-oriented gold exploration company and even before then. But from our perspective, the way we're looking at it is I don't want your audiences to look at our company as putting out a mixed message. We're a gold exploration company that is looking to add a second business so that we can generate some meaningful positive cash flow in these lean times in the gold sector. Even the gold is now over $1,400. It has been stable there for the last two or three weeks or so. There's still not enough investor sentiment back into the gold sector that people should be giving us the kind of appreciation that we're expecting or that we were expecting in terms of our operational results on the gold exploration side. So in this sort of a downtrend that has been such a prolonged downtrend over the last six, seven, eight years in the gold sector, we had to come up with some way to generate some positive cash flow that will alleviate the stress of having to raise more funds for our goal exploration objectives that more and more dilutive prices to the shareholders and so we'll come up with this novel way enterprising sort of a way entrepreneurial sort of a way of generating some cash flow now there is a chance and I don't want to be too forward-looking here there is a chance that the hemp business generates so much revenue so much cash flow that it basically becomes our primary business eventually but again our thinking is this at some point the two businesses will probably have to be split up into two separate companies we want to make sure that shareholders of California gold today that have an interest in both the gold business and the hemp business. We want to make sure that those shareholders are well taken care of. And when the businesses are eventually split up into two separate companies, we want to make sure that, you know, existing shareholders get a piece of both of the different daughter companies that will be coming out of the parent company, California Gold.
1: Well, it's certainly very exciting. And I choose my investments carefully. And I, of course, became an investor. That was my choice. You are a sponsor of our program, but it was my choice to become an investor probably a few weeks ago. And I am satisfied with my decision in that regard. Now, let's talk about market trends, news, and how news in the CBD and the cannabinoid area might affect the market and how it potentially could affect positive or negative California gold.
2: Well, a couple of things. I think you're probably asking a much more sort of a macro sort of a question in terms of the general CBD, cannabis sector, potentially the gold sector as well. I can tell you we're pretty insulated from that right now. I mean, just going by how cannabis sector companies trade right now, it's just unbelievable the kind of multiples that these companies are enjoying. Like, I don't want to name any names here, but just last week I was meeting with a representative of a company that is a publicly traded company. It's got a $500 million market cap. It has 100 employees working for it. Like, I'm going to repeat, 100 employees working for it. In the first quarter of this year, they had top-line revenue of $2.2 million Canadian. In the second quarter, they had $8.8 million revenue Canadian. I'm not talking about top-line revenues. I'm not even talking about earnings here, right? Like, There's no possibility of an earnings anytime in the future, from my understanding of this. This quarter, they're looking at $15 million in revenue. This quarter as well. What I'm trying to say is that that kind of a company with such a low revenue generation over the last like, six months or so has a market cap of, cap of $500 million. Now, obviously, the multiples are off the charts there. And it's not just that one particular company. This is symptomatic of the entire cannabis sector. It's just the sector is in its infancy still, and people just don't know how big the sector is actually going to be. There's a lot of excitement. Analysts all over the world are giving massive multiples to these companies for future expansion of their businesses. Again, the point is that they need to actually run a solid, solid business to maintain some of those multiples. Otherwise, the multiples are going to come crashing down in a very big way. And so we're pretty insulated from those sort of markets. Dynamics in the cannabis sector because you know, California Gold's market cap is $35 million Canadian dollars today. Now At $35 million Canadian dollars, I mean, our projections, and again I don't want to be too forward looking, so I can't tell you the revenue projections that we have for this year, but I mean, we are going to be significantly undervalued compared to the revenues that we'll be generating in our company, but I mean, when you look at like a comp stable, like a comparables analysis with other cannabis sector companies, I mean we're going to be so below everyone else that we're going to be completely off the chart. From that sort of perspective, the vagaries of the cannabis sector we had this fiasco with CanTrust about three weeks ago, where they were producing marijuana in unlicensed facilities and Health Canada suspended their license. And that was a pretty big blow to the cannabis sector in general. Since then, pretty much all major cannabis companies are trending down. We don't see that kind of an aspect, influence, that kind of a factor influencing us too much just because we're so far undervalued. We don't have any multiples that the market is giving us for the next 12 months, revenue generation in the next 12 months, that we would actually go and take a significant hit on those multiples. So we're pretty insulated. What we're looking to do is we are looking to build a cash flow positive business. I don't care what my stock price is today. What I really want to do is I want to build a business that generates positive cash flow in the timeline that I've set for the market. The expectation is once we stay strong with our fundamentals, we should have the multiples and the market cap, the share price appreciation should be following us in terms of how good our business is actually running. Uh, instead of the other way around, most of these companies in the cannabis sector right now got those massively high multiples right off the start, and now they're in the process of actually backstopping those multiples by building their businesses in the background. We're not going to do that. We're not going to try and put the cart before the horse. We want to run it the right way and we actually want to build a positive, positive business that generates cash flow and the multiples will follow.
0: That
1: certainly makes a lot of sense. Having said that, let's circle back to gold mining, California gold mining specifically, developing, exploration. What can we see for the project in Fremont, California over the next six months to a year?
2: Well, as I mentioned to you before, we have a four-kilometer strike of this historic Mother Road gold belt running on our property. That's a very substantial strike. We've only drilled out one kilometer. There's three more kilometers to go. And just on that one kilometer that we have drilled out, we have a very substantial initial resource of almost 900,000 ounces of gold at pretty decent grades right on surface. There's expansion potential at depth as well. We've got 25 historic mines on the property from the original gold rush days that have all been dormant for the last 70, 75, 80 years. Those historic mines go down to two to three times as far deep below the surface as the extent of our resource estimate so you know we've got a lot of expansion potential obviously a lot of this drilling that is required to expand our resources the drilling is going to require capital and uh, that was the impetus behind us adding the secondary business of hemp farming hemp cultivation to our company so we could generate some cash flow and then we could actually go and in a non-dilutive way do the drilling required to expand our resources. Our expectation now again is that as soon as we have cash flow positive sort of an event in late September, early October this year, I think we're going to be reviewing our options. We're going to see exactly where the gold market is whether companies that are peers of ours in terms of gold exploration are they starting to see some positive appreciation in terms of share price of gold appreciation and in terms of better investor sentiment in the junior gold space based on their operational results. And if the answer to that question is yes, then absolutely it makes sense for us to chop off three or four million Canadian dollars out of the total cash flow that we're going to be generating from our hemp business and uh, dedicate that three to four million dollars towards completing the drill program on our second kilometer strike. That's the Queen's specimen zone I'm very excited about the Queen Specimen Zone. The initial resource is sitting on only one kilometer of strike and that's the Pine Tree Josephine zone. The second kilometer of strike which we are drilling right now, or we've suspended drilling now, but we were drilling up until recently, that's called the Queen Specimen Zone. And the results in the Queen specimen zone seem to be even better than the results that we were getting in terms of the tenor minimization, the, the grades that we're getting, you know, the widths that we're actually generating in the queen specimen zone seem to be even better than what we were getting in the pine tree Josephine zone. So if given a chance, if we do execute on our business plan on the hemp side and we are able to generate some cash flow that can be uh, taken towards our goal exploration activities. Then towards the end of this year and early next year, I want to go and complete the drilling on that Queen Specimen Zone. It's a 10,000 meter drill program out of which 4,000 meters has already been completed. So there's another 6,000 meters to go. That's going to cost me roughly three to four million Canadian dollars. If the market is there, we get the positive cash flow. The expectation is by Q2 of 2020, we should have the drilling completed and then we should potentially have a second resource out as well. And combined, that would, be covering between the Pine Tree Josephine zone and the Queen Specimen zone, we should be covering two kilometers out of the total four kilometer strike, and the resource should be higher than the initial 900,000 ounces that we came out with just on the Pine Tree Josephine.
1: Well, it certainly sounds exciting, Michelle. I want to thank you for your time today and for the update. I know our audience is very interested in progress in both arenas of your company. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program.
2: My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you very much for having me.
1: I've been speaking with Vishal Gupta, the president and CEO of California Gold Mining Incorporated, trading on the OTCQX as CFGMF and on the CSE as CGM. Download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Visit us today at ellismartreport.com.
3: Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form.
1: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Dr. William Willoughby, the CEO of Cypress Development Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CYP and in the U.S. as CYDVF. Cypress Development is focused on developing its 100% held Clayton Valley Lithium Project in Nevada. The company's Clayton Valley project is located immediately east of Albemarle's Silver Peak Mine, North America's only lithium brine operation. Exploration by Cypress has discovered an extensive deposit of leachable lithium-bearing claystone at surface adjacent to the brine field. The size of the discovery makes the Clayton Valley project A premier target with the potential to impact the future production of lithium in North America. Bill, welcome back to the program.
3: Thank you, Ellis. Great being back with you.
1: If you wouldn't mind, catch us upon the Clayton Valley Project.
3: Cypress is main project that we have is Clayton Valley Lithium Project. It's located just southwest of Tonopah Nevada, about halfway between Las Vegas and Reno. And what we're looking at there is a very large sedimentary hosted lithium deposit. It's in clays and it's right at the surface. It's a about 2 billion ton resource containing about 9 million tons total of lithium carbonate. So quite a significant resource on the world stage of lithium projects. Deposits great as far as its location, has access to it, power nearby, and it sits at the surface, as I said, that has no overburden, and it's an acid leachable clay. So what we're looking at with the project is taking it in kind of a conventional acid leaching process, putting it into agitated tank leach with sulfuric acid and extracting the lithium from it and from there, extracting the lithium from solution.
1: What is unique about this particular process that you have as opposed to other projects in the area or in North America?
3: Well, it's really in the space of clays now. It's not all that unique. It's almost like we're following the same sort of process flow sheet as you might have for oxide copper or oxide cobalt. Certainly the Chinese are into rare earths and they extract rare earths using a sulfuric acid leach from clays. So that portion of it's not really unique. There's other projects that are advancing. Lithium Americas and Ioneer have two claystone deposits that are also looking at sulfuric acid leaching. It is unique in the space of lithium projects because 60% of the world's lithium comes out of brines, which are like oil field brines. They're solutions that are pumped out from subsurface and evaporated in evaporation ponds. Chile and Argentina are the big producers of that. 40% of the world's lithium comes out of hard rock pegmatites, which Greenbushes in Australia is the big dog in that. And that's more of a conventional mine mill where you take the ore, you crush it, grind it, and recover it by flotation and then ship a concentrate off to wherever you're headed, most likely Asia.
1: You are embarking on a pre-feasibility study for the Clayton Valley Lithium Project. Tell us about how that is going to progress.
3: Well, we completed a preliminary economic assessment, a PEA study in October last year, which had positive robust economics to it. Since that time, we've been working steadily on metallurgy, that's the big driver in the project is can you actually re- extract it and recover the lithium from the clays? So that's the main focus. Mining on this is relatively simple. But we had a drilling program started in March, ended in April. We added a number of infill holes, which we're using now for metallurgy. Those confirmed the assumptions in the PEA. Prefeasibility studies. progressing. We anticipate that it will be completed this summer. Everything's along the line of the prefeasibility studies falling into place. We just announced in a press release that we had completed a bulk sample, which we're using for phase two of the PFS, which is focusing on extracting the lithium from solutions, from the pregnant leach solution. The bulk sample that was leached was 100 kilos. That was about 400 times the size of any sample we'd been testing prior to that. That was quite successful. We had 85% extraction of the lithium with acid consumption that was right along the line with the PEA of 124 kilos a ton on the acid consumption. So, pretty positive as far as the progress is going. Right now for the pre-feasibility study, what we're looking at is phase two, which is concentrating on covering the lithium from solution. With that, we're looking at how we actually handle the solution in the leach, how we concentrate it either through evaporation or ion exchange, and how we get the lithium out to a final product.
1: Give us a snapshot of what this project could look like in the future once you have the data to proceed forward with further development of the project. It's sizable. With a project that size, how is that a game changer potentially?
3: Well, it's certainly significant in terms of Nevada and U.S. production of lithium. We targeted 25,000 tons a year of LC lithium carbonate equivalent as our production goal out of the PEA. Our PFS looks like it'll be on track for that sort of number. To do that, we would have a 15,000 ton a day surface mine, no strip ratio to that. So basically we're handing 15,000 tons of material into a process that looks like a conventional leach process. It could be scalable upwards or downwards from that. Most likely we'd like to go upwards over time. And you can see something that might be maybe a double on that size going forward.
1: Let's talk about the share structure of the company.
3: We've got about 80 million shares out. Our share structure is distributed between mostly retail investors, a few insiders. There's no real dominant position in the company as far as shares. And our stock is trading about 20 cents. So we're about a $15 million market cap right now.
1: Bill, tell us about what's happening in the next few months.
3: Well, our first main driver is finishing the PFS and getting out this summer. After that, we'll be looking to do, say, uh, more studies in advance of uh, progressing to a feasibility study. With that in mind, we are looking and trying to size ourselves towards a pilot plant that would support the feasibility study, and then we'll also be doing some optimization studies looking at, say, potential byproducts out of the material and ways to cut
1: costs. Well, Bill, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Hope to see you soon. Well, thank you, Ellis. It was a pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. William Willoughby, the CEO of Cypress Development Corporation, trading a CYP on the TSX Venture Exchange and CYDBF in the U.S. Visit our website, ellismartinreport.com.
3: Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free, ellismartinreport.com.
0: This segment of the Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by Amex Exploration, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AMX, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. Amex Exploration is exploring its 100% owned Perrone Gold Project in Quebec, Canada, featuring super high-grade intersects. Go to their website, AmexExploration.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin with David Morgan. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Morgan,
1: a precious metals aficionado armed with degrees in finance and engineering. He created the morganreport.com website and originated the Morgan Report covering economic news, overall financial health of the global economy, currency problems, and the key reasons for investing in the resource sector. David considers himself a big-picture macroeconomist whose main job is education, educating people about honest money and the benefits of a sound financial system. David, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back, Ellis. Last time we spoke, I think it was about two weeks ago, we chatted about digital currency, about Libra, about Bitcoin, and where that left us all in an invasive sort of way. Now I'd like to direct that conversation back to specifically the U.S. dollar as we head more and more into the digital world and paper money becomes less relevant in our daily transactions and we're using more of these apps. At what point do borders disappear With regard to currency, the U.S. dollar, and it being then a numbers game with China with 1.5 billion people on the planet, if they wind up controlling a lot of these platforms, do they not by rote have the currency?
4: So I'll just digress back because, you know, it's like, well, when when are we on the one world or the global currency? And I remember years ago when the gold and silver markets were extremely hot. I mean, as most listeners know that I've been with you a long time, I mean, gold had a bull market from basically 2000 through 2011. So in that 2004, 5, 6 timeframe, somewhere in there, I was on stage in a foreign country. I'd done the Europe tour, which was five or six cities, and I was in Hong Kong and so I'm talking about the global currency, and I held up my Visa card, and I said, this is a global currency. Because basically, all of London, Paris, Zurich, Munich, Frankfurt, all the places I'd been in Europe, I just kept using that piece of plastic and the banks took care of the exchange rate. So in other words, even though I was spending US dollars, it was a global currency from the aspect of that piece of plastic worked in every coffee shop, every restaurant, every hotel and everything else. So the point I was trying to make is, hey folks, it's already here. I'm holding one in my hand and chances are you have one as well. Now that's not to say that there isn't the Euro and there isn't the pound sterling and the Swissy and all that, but from a perspective, you could say that the Visa card took care of all the intermediary changes. Yes, to come back to your set of questions, the dollar is still the primary settlement vehicle. But I think Perhaps rather than going to one settlement situation, it could be multiple. In other words, let's say like in the Internet world when it started in a big way, you know, there was a lot of dot coms that went to the buy and buy. I mean, they were you know popcorn rallies, they shot up public companies and then died, and went to zero. But Amazon's there, Yahoo's there. I mean, some of these great big ones are still stalwarts of the internet world that we know today. So it could be a situation where you've got Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, this Libra if it really gets launched, and four or five others, and everything else is sort of either gone or trade on a boutique basis on an appointment-only basis. So I could see where you could have not only those competing currencies that are rather vibrant and used internationally without borders as you suggest and still have the currency system we have now or close to it I've been given the opportunity to work with David Havner on his film and I'm the technical advisor on the monetary side and looking primarily at where the system is going at large and I just did an interview with him in Las Vegas so was at the money show and in that interview I said and I'm still of this thought that the one thing that the powers that be want is a cashless they don't want you to be able able to put a piece of paper in your pocket because that's anonymous once you have a euro bill or a pound of sterling bill or a swiss franc or a u.s dollar or a canadian dollar or an australian dollar or whatever and you go into wherever you go you know it could be with your neighbor it could be a coffee shop it could be a restaurant or whatever and you make a purchase with cash there's no way to trace that but if they eliminate cash And everything is done on, let's say, a blockchain type of system, or even just your Visa card or whatever, that's all trackable. And that's what they want. They want control. Money equates to power, and ultimate power comes through control. And if you can control the money supply to be in a situation where it's always going into a data system, into a a data chain, database, blockchain, distributed ledger system, then you have every transaction and there's no way out. So this is i think the main goal or the main thrust now whether it gets to just one currency or not remains to be determined it could i mean you see the consolidation obviously in the eurozone and that takes care of france and germany and several of the other countries spain but not all of them i mean like the pound sterling sits alone they don't use the euro bill in the uk the swiss franc is still Stands on its own, but most of the other currencies have acquiesced to become euros. And so the push is obviously there, but I think the more important point isn't are we going to one world currency, which we could. I think a more important point is, what do they want out of it? They want accountability, traceability, and want absolute control, which means you can't have an anonymous payment method.
1: The only place I want to go with this right now is gold, which is how we started transacting centuries ago. And then we had the gold standard that disappeared. There's talk of it coming back. We don't know if that's going to happen. Where is the value of gold, especially if blockchain doesn't need to be backed by anything? I mean. What are your thoughts? Where do we go with gold? Because we're in that business, you and I.
4: Well, I think, you know, I I look at my business similar to my friend Mike Maloney, you know, some of my friends in the industry. I think primarily my public image is all about education. And the whole part of gold is, it's not a mystery. I mean, it's a fact. I mean, gold is the ultimate currency for thousands and thousands of years for a reason. It works. (laughs) I mean, there isn't a paper money system that's ever lasted forever once it's not tied to some type of substance and that substance is usually gold silver or both and so we're in a situation where every time this has been experimented with from the time the Chinese invented paper money till this day where every fiat system has failed and this one has failed for all practical purposes I'll probably get some blowback in the comment section if you keep the comments open I don't But, yeah, I mean, I can still use my, I call Starbucks six bucks. I mean, that's about what it takes to buy a medium-sized latte. But my U.S. dollars will still work in Starbucks. I know that. My point is that the currency has been hyperinflated over a long period of time, so no one would call it hyperinflation, but the U.S. dollar based on the Federal Reserve Board's own data says that that 1913 U.S. dollar is now worth about two and a half cents. So it's about 98% failure right now as we speak. So we're kind of arguing how fast is that last two and a half cents worth going to degrade? When is it going to happen? Is it going to go to absolute zero? And if that all takes place or moves that direction, what does gold do? And gold is the other side of the seesaw. As the dollar comes down, gold goes up in value. You got to remember gold is the constant. An ounce of gold is the same mass anywhere in the universe. Everyone says, well, it's so unstable. My God, gold, look at the price of gold, it's unstable. No, gold is a constant. What's unstable is the currency systems of the planet. That's what's unstable. Get it through your thinking, people. That's what you got to think about. Is that piece of paper is what's not stable?
1: So, an ounce of gold essentially buys the same thing it always has in value. The, the numbers for currency have gone up, they've gone down, they do what they do. They've mostly gone down, probably a thousand percent in the last 40 years. So, the constant is a piece of gold will buy you the same thing it ever did, correct?
4: Yeah, that's kind of a coin dealer mantra, and it's essentially Mm -hmm. true, but it really isn't. I mean, the facts of the truth are that gold, like anything else, can be undervalued, fair-valued, or overvalued. So when gold is fair-valued over a long period of time, that ounce of gold will buy you a suit, an umbrella, a pair of shoes, you know, that type of thing, or a toga and sandals or whatever. That argument is valid, but it's valid in a broad brush perspective. So what you really want to look at is your individual case meaning you know where we are today in the monetary system and how important gold is right now. And is gold valued undervalued fair valued or overvalued right now? Right now, it's undervalued. Where is it fair valued? Well, I would say probably in the five dollars to $10,000 range, believe it or not. I can go to that argument now. I've written about it so many times. And then overvalued would be anything above that. So if you go back to 1979, 1980, when we had that last big gasp into basically a panic buying mode before Volcker took control of the Fed and raised interest rates, gold went from like 300 in early December of 1979 to 850 in January 21st, 1980. So you had about 20 trading days where it went up basically 300% and that was panic buying thinking that the dollar is going to fail and a Volcker didn't step in and perhaps it would have. So there is a point where it became fair value and fair value was $400 the ounce. But it went to $800 an ounce. It actually got overvalued in 1980.
1: That's a trader's market then. The traders benefited no one else, right?
4: Well, I think some of the long-term or long-term gold holders that were smart enough to get out or partially out were benefited. I mean, if you bought gold like you could if you're really savvy, you couldn't buy gold until, I forget, 72 or something. Look it up on the internet. It was illegal until the 70s. But you could buy NUMIs. So you could buy these coins that really weren't numies per se, but like the Mexican peso that were semi-NUMI, but they qualified. So you're buying gold basically at $42, 22 an ounce plus a slight premium legally. So people like that, which are very few, they benefited. People that bought gold at 300 and sold it benefited. But you're right. I mean, these accelerations just like in the real estate market or the stock market or any of these markets, when that parabolic rise starts to happen you really want to pay attention you don't want to get too greedy you need to sell out what you want to sell out at is a benefit to you meaning that you know it's overvalued and it was for a short time and then when cold pulled back it took a long time there was a $600 gold for a long time until it got to 400 and then of course it went down from there eventually but my point being is that you had full gold coverage of the M1 money supply at $400 the ounce in 1980 to do the same thing today it would take about $13,000 an ounce to do the same thing so if you have a run like you had in 1980 I'm not saying that you will but you could because I think we're going to see another big lift in the gold market over the next several years and you could see it go you know if it did similar than you see on you know, the $20,000 gold, which sounds absolutely preposterous now, but you gotta remember when gold was fixed at 35, which is really 42, but I don't need to go there. When it was under 100 at a fixed price, it'd be at that level for a very long time. So when you released it to a free market, it moved up to 100 pretty quick, then it got to 200, and then it sold off back to 100, and all the people that bought it when it was available and legal to buy it, just bullion, watched good appreciation go, and then they watched basically go back to where they got in at, or some people bought at 150 and then goes back to 100 or 200 and went back to 100 They really were devastated. And we're seeing that same thing play out again, only it's taking a lot more time this time. Meaning, you know, those people that bought 1750 1800 1850 $1,900 gold or even $1,500 gold. And they're watching it go down to 1050, 1050 and now all the way back up and finally break the fourteen hundred dollar level. And it's been a six year wait. I mean, a lot of people have given up on gold, but ultimately <laughs> you can't give up on gold, especially if you buy the right amount and you don't overload, because as you said, what about gold? Well, what about gold is it's the ultimate currency that doesn't fail and everyone needs it, especially when the whole monetary system of the planet is failing. It's that simple.
0: Quebec, Canada is one of the most mining-friendly jurisdictions in the world. That's where you'll find Amex Exploration trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as AMX and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. Amex, during their 2018-2019 drilling program on their 100% owned Perone Gold project, has returned multiple super high-grade gold intersects. These include approximately 9.5 ounces per ton of gold over 1.35 meters, 20.5 ounces per ton of gold over 0.8 meters, and 7.6 ounces per ton gold over 0.65 meters. Visible Gold has been intersected In virtually every hole of the high grade zone exploration program. Amex is led by a very senior and talented team of mine finders and mine financiers that have invested their own capital next to shareholders' capital and are committed to spending shareholder money wisely to build value. The company recently completed a $5 million financing and brought on two large investors, Eric Sprott and Commodity Capital. Amex can drill year-round and recently added a second drill to allow for regional exploration and targeted drilling on the eastern gold zone of the Perone property, which should continue to yield ample news flows throughout the balance of 2019. Follow this exciting gold discovery story by going to amexexploration.com. Back in 2011,
1: 2012, we had kind of a parabolic market where it went up to $1,800, $1,900 an ounce in the U.S., the price of gold. The numbers you... We're talking about $5,000 an ounce, $10,000 an ounce. Pick a number. I heard some of those numbers back then. If that were to happen in our lifetime, (laughs) and by that I mean 5, 10, even 15 years, that is kind of parabolic. Do we have hyperinflation along with that? Then what's anything worth?
4: Yeah, I don't think we'll get true hyperinflation in the United States. I think we'll get enough inflation where you could see those numbers. The bond market is where a lot of savings is held. And so interest rates would be forced up by the market. Believe it or not, the Fed has a lot of control, but not ultimate control. The market has the ultimate control. So as bond prices would go down because interest rates were forced up, and that would take a lot of money out of the system. In other words, you would have a lot less money available. So you convert those bonds that were worth $1,000 on their face and it would only convert to $800 ready right cash, that type of thing. So it actually is a kind of a governor on the system. And there's so many distortions in the market, there'd be a lot of failures. There'd be a lot of things that went to zero, you know, companies that were uh, insolvent, banks that were insolvent, junk bond markets, some corporates. So there'd be a lot of money that died and went to money heaven that went from basically X amount like Bear Stearns to zero. So that would contract the money supply at the same time that you're having food prices increase weekly, healthcare's gone up substantially as we all know, and gasoline potentially. So you see stuff that you need every day like let's say food and gas going up 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 and failures in corporate structure with some of the, you know, chain restaurants and department stores and whatever failing and going basically out of business. So, it'll be a mixed bag, I think. I don't think there's going to be a one-way street. And the other part about the hyperinflation is that usually those countries that have that type of hyperinflation don't have advanced capital markets, or let me say it another way, people understand, advanced capital markets just means a strong bond market. Well, the biggest, strongest bond market in the world is obviously the United States, full faith in credit. The problem is, if you analyze it with anything more than about five minutes or you with know, five minutes or less you can determine that it's, it's a falsehood. It's about the most unstable thing out there, much more unstable than gold because there is no way at all, ever, that that debt can be paid back in real terms. It can be paid back where you print the money and that $1,000 face value bond gets cashed in for $1,000. But as you're alluding to with your hyperinflation question, it's what is the value of that $1,000? And the answer to that is it sure as heck isn't the same value as what it was when you bought that bond two years previous.
1: Which leads me to my next question. All these factors in place and they're real factors that you're stating. Recently the CEO of JP Morgan alluded to the fact that all the factors that you just mentioned may be driving the dollar down or will do so in the future do you think that they're pointing indirectly to a burgeoning gold market can we see what we saw in 2011 can we see something parabolic that may last for a long time
4: i don't think a long time what i see is no i'm not a big Elliot guy but a lot of my friends are and i've got a pretty good technical background it helps i don't rely on just technical work but it's an aid a tool. It's worth studying in my view. And I think was the last leg up, which will be the third leg of this major bull market in gold. I could do silver but a little better because in my head easier. You know, you went from the $5 level to the $21 level. And then you had the financial crisis and it took silver from 21 down to about nine. And then it went from nine all the way up to 48 on April, 2011. And then you've gone from that level all the way down and I think we got a 13 or low 14 handle on it. The third leg up usually goes faster. So it could go three, four years. And the last part of it goes parabolic. And the general rule of thumb is that it does two or three times better than the previous up leg. Well, the previous up leg was $10 to $50. So it's a $40 move. So if we double that to 80 or well, we triple that to 120 and we add 120 being optimistic, $120 onto the $15 we are now, we're at $135 silver, okay? And doesn't mean it'll happen, it's just one of those things, if you look back and you study this thing like I do, and others, you know, a lot of this I got because I read and read and reread and studied and studied more, and again, it doesn't guarantee anything. No, it doesn't. It's just a rule of thumb, that the third leg is the fastest in time and the highest in price appreciation. That's why the adage I was spouting... For some time, is 90% of the move comes to the last 10% of the time. You could have been a silver bug in 1965 when we went off the silver standard in a practical manner. We'd really been off it monetarily, but it still circulated as our currency. And so you said, oh my God, so whatever you you know do this to Gershom law takes over, I'm going to hold my silver. It's going to go up in fiat terms, which it did. And so you did it from 1965 to 1979, and you did it for so what 14 years or so. And silver went from that dollar twenty nine an ounce monetary value to about six dollars monetary value and actually was a real gain, but not huge. But let's say you're a ranked speculator, knew absolutely nothing about the silver market, nothing about monetary history, but you were just lucky enough to buy silver in December of nineteen seventy nine and watch it go from six bucks to fifty bucks in a month. You made eight hundred percent of your money in a matter of weeks. Whereas that other person had all their gains over 14 years that weren't nearly as significant as they were. So that shows you the power of a panic buying mode and the fact that 90% of the move came in the last 10% of the time. So what you want to do when this thing goes parabolic the next time, as we've already said once in this interview or discussion, is you want to pay attention. And my plan is already written in the book. And I do it with David Smith, Second Chance. We talk about this. And why you don't want to get too greedy. Everyone wants to sell at the top. That's a given. It's human nature You want to buy as low as you can and sell as high as you can and admit that David I admit it. You also need to know that that's nearly impossible to do. So what's a practical approach? Well, it's to filter out on the way up and we even have a chapter or part of a chapter here called the sacrifice fly that if you've sold everything and you still think it's going higher you can bet a little to win a lot getting the options market and try to catch that last big leg up. My plan isn't to sell it all. I mean, I'm gonna sell a great portion of it and move it into something else that's undervalued. That's the plan. And of course, take my readers along with me, but also probably let some roll over even though it's overvalued and I could make a profit on it because it's a legacy investment. I don't think silver or gold are ever gonna go away. They may not ever re-enter the monetary system officially, but unofficially, they're always gonna be there in my view.
1: You're probably more apt to get a 10-banger with the equities if you know what you're doing than the physical metal. So
4: Absolutely. what's
1: the breakdown there? You
4: know, a lot of the silver-only or gold-only, I will not touch paper, people don't like this statement, but one of the first interviews I ever did, or first speaking engagements, I should call it, was here where I live, or close to where I live, over in the uh, Silver Valley. I was asked by uh, one of the mining associations to come over and talk, so obviously I jumped at the chance, went over there, and just a group of crusty old miners, I really enjoyed it and one of these guys came up to me and he said, you know, I've always made a lot more money on paper silver than I ever made in silver. And I knew exactly what I was talking about, especially over there with these silver penny stocks were really prolific in the 70s, even in the 60s. I mean, the Spokane had a stock exchange at one time. And a lot of these one-cent stocks went to 13 cents. I mean, that's a 13-bagger, and 13-cent stocks went to 39. You know, it was just insane at one time. Talk about the wild, wild west. But no, it's true. Generally, you get about a three to one leverage in a silver or gold stock relative to the metal itself. I like to do both, I teach both. You should have a physical part of your portfolio that's not margin, you can touch and it's all good to go. And then after you've accomplished that, if you wish to really accomplish some capital gains, then you wanna buy basically top tier, unhedged cash rich mining companies that don't hedge. And then that's the safest three to one factor and then you can move down into a higher risk, higher reward profile, which is your mid-tiers with a lot of exploration potential. And then what the whole newsletter business usually focuses on, I don't, although I touch on it, and that's the speculative junior mining company stocks that have basically very to little merit but have the greatest copywriters behind them you've ever seen on the planet. So.
1: <laughs> and presenters as well, people that can sell anything to anybody. They're the best. David, tell us about your
4: website. All right, that's Morganreport.com. I suggest you get on the free email list. Every interview I do like this, I publish for you, just present it to you. We take questions from that audience from time to time. If you're a full-fledged member, there's a sales page on TheMorganReport.com. You can scroll and get all the sales pitch, and you also get to ask me two questions every month, and I guarantee an answer, which is kind of a benefit. David, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Well, thanks for having me.
1: I've been chatting with analyst, investor, and newsletter writer David Morgan. His website is theMorganReport.com and download the entire Ellosmart report on iTunes
0: and TuneIn Radio. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report has been sponsored by Amex Exploration, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AMX, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. Amex Exploration is exploring its 100% owned own Gold Project in Quebec, Canada, featuring super high-grade intersects. Go to their website, AmexExploration.com.
3: Thoughts, comments, criticisms, accolades, praise, admonishments, pats on the back, all welcomed. Email us at martinreports at gmail.com and tell us how you really feel.
0: You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.